So please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected God, nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to the elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn Church. What's up? All right, let me get my stopwatch set up so I can get you guys out by lunchtime. Okay, my name is Eric. Uh, I am one of the members here at Sojourn Church, and I'm excited to dig in with you guys this morning and take a look at God's Word, that we may be edified and God may be glorified. So I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What do you want? What do you really want deep down in the core of your being? What are you desperate for? Now, I notice we have some college students in the room, and I know you're coming up on finals week. Super exciting, right? But I can imagine what you really, really want. Not only to be done, but to be done well. So we're praying for you guys as you approach your finals. Now, my wife Melanie and I have four kids that are relatively young. Our third oldest, sorry, second oldest, our six-year-old, everybody that knows him (coughs) thinks he's a wonderful, perfectly well-behaved six-year-old. But when you live with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you see a more thorough picture of our child. See, David is his name, and he set up a tent in our living room on one side of it. Wesley and Catherine set up a tent on the other side of the living room. And given Wesley and Catherine's personality types, they built this massive tent, and then they love to destroy things. So they tear it down, totally. But David built his pristine tent and wants to leave it there for a few days at least while he plays in it. So after they tore down their tent and David had his tent, I asked all three of them, Okay, guys, it's time to pick up the couch cushions and the pillows and the blankets and everything else that you guys use to build your tent so we can get our living room in order again. And David kind of looked, nodded, and calmly went back to his tent. And so Catherine and Wesley promptly got up and started picking up. So then I looked at David again. I said, David, I need you to help your brother and sister pick up stuff from their tent. He looked up, nodded calmly went back to his tent and started playing in his tent. So the third time I get done on his level, 
look at him in the eye and say, David, I really need you to help your brother and sister pick up their tent. So he looks up at me again. His eyes get big, kind of watery. He says, but Papa, all I care about is my tent. I'm like, that's the crux of the issue. (laughs) He didn't give a rip what his papa was asking him to do or why. Only that the tent that he built had his attention. So over the last few weeks, we've been building a foundation on which we are now going to spring off of to teach more thoroughly or comprehensively on what we call the confident hopes. We've looked at as the foundation the great commandment, which is the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've looked at the great commission that Christ has called us to, to make disciples and to teach them and to baptize them. We've looked at the necessity of every member involved in ministry with one another. So if those kind of form the foundation for what we hope, what the leaders hope for our church over the next several years, when we're looking at the confident hopes, they're the fruit that we anticipate will come about as a result, as we give ourselves to the great commandment, the great commission, and to every member ministry. So that brings us to the first confident hope we're going to examine a little more closely this morning, and that is persistent prayer. So persistent prayer, as we've defined it, is that a church is on our knees with a culture of pray first, pray during, pray after, and pray often. So why is prayer so important for us, and why is it so predominant in Scripture? Because prayer is the conduit through which we come to know God deeply and personally in an intimate way, the conduit through which we come to know one another as intimate family, and also we get a chance to experience what can only be attributed to the glory of God, not to our own glory. So we're going to start unpacking persistent prayer by looking in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, that Brian just read to us this morning. So the parable that Brian read is essentially a lesser to a greater argument. You've got two judges. The primary purpose is to instruct and encourage the disciples to always pray and never lose heart. So let's take a closer look at Jesus' parable, starting with that unrighteous judge drama. So there are three characters in this section of the drama. The unrighteous judge, the widow, and the widow's adversary. And because we're a little removed from the culture and the context that Jesus was talking to, let's get a little bit familiar first with each of these characters. In this culture, a judge has ultimate authority. There's no jury and there's no court of appeals. He's unregulated except by a higher authority in the monarchy. There's no magnanimity, and there's no equal justice. Roman judges often disregarded and had no respect for the Jewish people, their beliefs, their culture, their heritage, or their religion. There was no social justice agenda by the general population, right? Through Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, CNN, Fox, whatever social justice or media platform to voice the populace did not exist at this time, or at least did not have a voice at this time. Think of the movie 
Judge Dredd. Have you guys ever seen that? If you have not, I would not recommend going to watch it. However, it's a good illustration because in it, Judge Dredd is the sole judge, jury, and executioner in justice. Now, the judge may not directly execute the justice in this case, but whatever the judge says goes and will be carried out. So don't watch the movie, but remember, (laughs) fear Judge Dredd knocking on your door. So specific characteristics of this judge described as Jesus in the parable is that he's unrighteous. He does not love what is right. He does not fear God. He does not respect any man, not just Jews, but any man. In other words, he cares nothing except for himself. And like we looked at, he is the sole authority for administration of justice. So this is a fairly dire and difficult arrangement, especially for an unfavored people. So now let's get familiar with the widow. Very, very different compared to our culture again. So in this culture, a widow is an outcast, poor, needy, destitute, oppressed, unloved, uncared for, often associated with orphans in scripture, which points to the fact that she cannot care for herself. One of the commentaries in the definition section for a widow says, in the pagan world, the greatest fear among women, listen to this, the greatest fear among women was that of becoming a widow. Many women preferred to die at their spouse's grave rather than continue life without a husband. Not because the husbands were so great, mind you, but losing a husband to death meant that a woman lost her sole sustainer and protector. She had lost everything if her husband died. So imagine the stark contrast between the high class and the culture of the judge and the authority of the judge and that of the widow who's an outcast and disregarded and whom some think should really just die. And yet, what is the widow doing in the parable? She's persistently praying or persistently asking of the judge for something. For her, it is absolutely worth it, even though it can cost her very much, though she doesn't have much to lose in this life. But she is in desperate need. She has no longer any hope or provision or hope for this life. She must get this righteous judgment from the judge. And only the judge has the authority to do so. So for the judge now, to, for him to grant justice to this widow, he would have to go against the culture, against the community authority structures and power structures, in order to grant this widow what she requested. So what happens? Eventually, the unrighteous judge caves to her petitions. For the sake of his own comfort, he gives the widow what she wants. In brief summary, we have a helpless widow pleading to a self-interested judge for something that is completely unheard of, but that she is in desperate need of for survival. So what's the point so far? Even when petitioning an uncaring and unrighteous judge persistently, when you have no hope culturally for his favor, he will eventually cave and give you what you ask if you persist in it continuously. Sounds like a very miserable, difficult, and almost hopeless endeavor. That's the unrighteous judge drama that Jesus paints. Now let's take a look at the righteous judge drama. So there's two characters in this drama, the righteous judge who's defined as God, 
and God's people, the elect or chosen. So this includes us today. So as we describe this judge and this parable, also like envision yourselves in this drama. The description of the judge is that he's righteous. So he loves what is right. He doesn't love himself at the expense of others. He gives willingly to his people. He doesn't neglect people for his own personal gain. And he gives speedily without unnecessary delay. He doesn't withhold until he is annoyed and finally won over. So the point is we can trust him in his character to be ready and capable to respond for our good and for his glory. The idea is that he knows what is good and perfect and right for his people. The idea is that he will bring about complete and perfect justice to all people, if not during their time on this earth, then certainly and ultimately in heaven. So, of course, who would not, with the character of this judge, cry to him night and day? And we have access to our righteous judge continuously and forever through the person and work of Christ. But do we pray persistently like this widow? If we don't, why? So let's take a look at the book of James to try and answer that question before we come back to Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So in James, it says, again, chapter 4, 1 through 3, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So the first observation by James is that you do not have because you do not ask. So why isn't James's audience asking, as we looked at this very short snippet? At a basic level, they are trying to meet their needs themselves. They are depending on their own capabilities and innate abilities. They don't intimately know God and his nature and character. How do we see this, and how does it translate into our own lives? We don't pray because in our concept of our circumstances, we don't think we need God. We are utterly confident in ourselves and in the capabilities of others. We depend our, on our innate ability and capabilities to work for God to accomplish his purposes or to work for ourselves and obtain what we desire. We make self-dependence or independence primary. Now, how do we see this actually play out in our culture? And Melanie has been homeschooling the kids for a while, and this came up in one of the fables that she was reading by Aesop, which translates to something we hear often. So how often have you heard the phrase, heaven helps those who help themselves? Does that come up in dialogue from time to time or movies or music or whatever? Have you guys heard that before? All right, so I have as well. And this isn't the key. This isn't just an American idea. 
Aesop's Fables was written 600 years before Christ. So this is 2,600 years ago that they still had this thread, this idea of heaven helps those who help themselves. In our everyday lives, we get the hustle and bustle to get everything set up just right. Our work, our circumstances, preparing for our exams, or on the Sunday morning level, the lights, the music, structuring our our ministries to, to line up for the right relationships and the right purpose, our class schedule in college, we want to fit just right to get perfect conversations. And when we dialogue with others, we think, how can I be prepared to discuss these arguments and win them over for Christ? Yet in all of our hustle and bustle and all of our busyness, what gets minimized or what even possibly gets forgotten? That is prayer. When our circumstances may get overwhelming, we may send up a, anybody guess? Hail Mary. Amen. When the circumstances get to the point where we have no hope, we shoot out a prayer and say, God, may we score the touchdown. God, may this happen. Prayer is not meant to be a tack-on or a last-ditch effort. Prayer is meant to be our lifeblood, our relationship with the God of the universe, that we know him that we know one another and we see his activity at work and we join his activity that he's working in. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says it like this, if you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy, But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find the time to pray. But really, are we really that self-capable? What does Scripture say about our self-dependence or independence? It says, in summary, that God is the fountain and source of all things, and that we are entirely dependent on him. Listen as I read Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 33. I'm going to read it rather quickly because it's a long passage, so bear, bear with me, stay engaged. I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store in their barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So he's got perfect care for his people. He's saying, trust me in that. Then he says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But, again, back to this nature and character of God, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom above all else. Live righteously and he will give you everything you need. We are like the widow in this parable, desperate, hopeless, 
poor and needy. Other scriptures that point to this include John 15, if you guys are familiar with that, verses 4 through 5. Jesus declares that we can do nothing apart from God as he talks about the importance of abiding in him, being tied to the vine in all things. And then later on in that passage, he says, for the reason I'm telling you this is for the joy that you can have in the fullness of Christ. So ask whatever you wish as you're abiding in him, and it will be done because you can do it? He says, it will be done for you. In Matthew 5, 3, as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he declares that blessed are the poor in spirit. So you guys remember the parable of the widow who tossed in her two mites, and she was a more righteous. That's actually just after this passage in, in Luke. She was more righteous than the one who said, I've got everything and I'm not like this person. That widow, before she tossed in her two mites, was one Greek word for widow. After she tossed in her two mites and had nothing to live on, she was another level of poor in the Greek language, utterly destitute. And that is the word Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 3. Utterly destitute and incapable. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. David Platt says it this way, the Christian life is one that is dependent on God. We are in desperate need, which is the crux of prayer. Again, Paul Miller in A Praying Life says, strong Christians do pray more, but they pray more because they realize how weak they are. So because God is the source of all things and we are desperate and needy in all things, pursue God in prayer. Not only to get things from Him, but to know Him. He wants to know every detail about your life. In fact, He already does know it. He wants you to come alongside Him in prayer and understand that and lift them up to Him. And then as we struggle and we have difficulties, we pray to Him and He then is glorified as His children pursue Him. As you would pursue a close and intimate friend or father. This begs a question, though, but when we pray, why don't we receive everything we ask for? Especially when it is in accordance with God's revealed good moral will. God, why are you not answering this desperate cry that I have in this situation? In accordance with what I see as good and right in your scripture. What is going on? I came to the point in my life when I wrestled through some very difficult times, and I said, forget it. God's not real. He's not answering what I'm asking him for that's clearly in his word. So therefore, how can he be real? How can he be the character that we see and we read in scripture? And that's when God sent two precious saints, almost like within five minutes of me coming to that conclusion, to help me think through that and to pray for me and realize who God truly is. So, from scripture, we can see two reasons why we don't receive what we ask for. And they are somewhat kind of intertwined. So first, let's look again at James chapter 4, now in verse 3. He says, you ask specifically of God and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions or only what will give you pleasure or hedonistic desires or pleasures. That's kind of how that word is used and translated in the Greek language or from the Greek language. So in other words, 
we want to make much of us. Our primary concern can often and subtly be our comfort, prestige, reputation, enjoyment, pleasure, and focused on our life on this earth. We miss the eternal reality amidst the temporary distractions. As an example, or as examples, we worry about satisfaction in our jobs. We worry about, worry about who we should marry and that our marriage would be healed. We, wor- we worry about whether we should buy a new house, whether we should send our kids to private school so that we can do well on an upcoming test or final. Amen? Right? We, we pray and we worry about healing for a sickness or a disease. These are not bad things in themselves. They are good things. Many of them are good things, but they are not necessarily ultimate things. See, the goal can be, not always, but the goal can be, the trajectory of our hopes as we pray can be primarily for our benefit. Just like David, the story I told you earlier, was primarily interested in attending to his treasured tent. And I do the same thing. Yet we have to remember that all of life is about something much bigger than ourselves here on earth right now, which leads us to the second reason why we may not receive what we ask for. Now we're going to jump back to Luke chapter 18 and look at the bookends of the parable, verse 1 and verse 8. So in verse 1, Luke 18, he says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. At the end of verse 8, he asks the question, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This sounds so hopeless. Why does he make this statement and pose this question, especially after describing the nature and character of our God? Sandwiched in the middle between these two bookends, he also asks another question. In verse 7, will he, the judge or God, delay long over them, i.e. his people? This is the second reason we may not receive what we ask for. Sometimes God does delay. And that can be hard. He may not give us what we ask for as speedily as we want. He may not give us the full extent of what we ask for. He may only grant our request for a time. Or he may not give us what we ask for at all. Even though we are asking for something good in accordance with his heart revealed in scripture and in accordance with his revealed good moral will. So listen to John Calvin about this particular text in Luke. The promise which he makes that God will speedily avenge them must be referred to his providence. For our hasty tempers and carnal apprehension lead us to conclude that he does not come quickly enough to grant relief. But if we could penetrate into his design, we would learn that his assistance is always ready and seasonable as the case demands and is not delayed for a single moment, but comes at the exact time. You say he may give us what we ask of him now or 
he may not. But what I'm about to say is a hard truth for hard times, but it is so good and so important. Yes, he nurtures and cares for his people, his sheep, for their good. And also, based on what we read in his word and know through our experience and the spirit of God in us, is that there is something more important than getting what we ask for right now. And that is God's redemptive plan throughout history. That's why the examples of people in the New Testament who are suffering and discouraged are so greatly encouraged as they remember that truth. Because in the circumstances that they are going through, God is working his plan for his glory and their ultimate care. And the riches of our inheritance through Christ far outweigh our momentary afflictions and our difficulties now. Listen to this text from Paul as he writes to the church in Corinth and contrasts what you can see now in the temporary world in front of us versus what will be eternal and forever. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Just a side note, I was with some guys Friday morning and we read through this text. Oh, I was just like, God be praised. Thankful that I'm with some brothers Friday morning that we're reading through this text together and allowing it to marinate in our hearts and guide our conversations as we seek to better know God, follow God, understand God, and glorify God. So I was just so encouraged, and I wanted to bring this out for you guys. So he says, we know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit, the church that Paul's writing to. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. This is written right after Paul explains the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations he has been walking through for the sake of the believers in Corinth. And then he continues, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, which are those temporary troubles, as other translations explain it. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things which cannot be seen, the things which are eternal and spiritual. For the things we see now, again, the temporary, will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see, the eternal things, will last forever. This is why Paul writes like he does and why he prays so fervently for fellow believers in the church in all of his letters. Because in pursuing this eternal gain that he talks about, we are helpless to bring about God's purposes in our lives and on the earth. But we don't want to be in that case where we're depending on ourselves. We want to see God move and work in us and through us. We want to be a part of a church where God is multiplying disciples and transforming lives to his ultimate glory and to our ultimate good. Amen? Amen. How can we hope to accomplish the confident hopes that we're talking about? How can we hope to be set free from setting and ongoing sin and difficulty? How can we hope for marriages to be restored? How can we hope for our children? 
to come up and to know and to love and to follow Christ? How can we hope for our coworkers to come to know Christ and be saved forever? We cannot. Only God can fulfill those hopes. As we've looked at the past three weeks, who can change a heart so that we can love God with our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength from which everything else stems? We fail in that. We fail in that often, so we repent and turn back to Him, and He brings it about in our lives over time. Who can work through us to change lives and actually make a disciple? Only God can. Who can mature us individually and corporately as His church to bring about fruit in our lives? Only God can. Only God can do the work of God. Yes, we strive hard. We work with all of our effort. We pursue loving the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pursue making disciples. We pursue the change and transformations of one another's lives in this church body. But we don't depend on our innate abilities or ourselves to accomplish the work that only he can do. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Merely servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. When I was in Japan uh, about a month or two ago, I traveled down south of Tokyo to see and encourage some of our missionary friends that are there. I was shocked by the relational and spiritual deadness in that culture, carried through centuries of patterns and priorities and values. It has to be one of the most discouraging places to minister. The people that live right across from our friends, the husband goes into Tokyo for months at a time, which is, keep in mind, it's about an hour away by train. But the priority that they have on their work, segregates them from the relationships they have in their family. So he comes back a few times a year to be with his wife and his son, not out of necessity, like we see in other cultures, but out of priority and out of values. Some in that culture, workers that work for companies, would rather die than get a poor performance review. Do you guys get performance reviews? I get performance reviews. Sometimes they can be pretty discouraging, but I promise you, I would not want to die because I've disappointed my supervisor. My life is not my supervisor. My life is not my job. My life is not my education. My life is God and Christ alone, and they don't know that. They don't have a witness to tell them that, and so our friends are there. And then how do you think God's going to change that? Yes, by our friends being there, ministering, missioning to them. But God is the one that changes their hearts. God is the one that takes centuries of patterns and behaviors and priorities and begins to change them and turn them and to bring his word to bear on them and to make disciples in that culture and in many cultures around the world. Only God can change hearts. So in our role in that, let's ask him to do it. Let's pray to him 
not just be like James's audience who says, well, you don't, ask, you don't get because you don't ask. Let's ask, and let's ask for God's glory to be done for the good of the people and his ultimate glory. So Samuel Chad, one of the uh, commentaries I looked at, said the one concern of the devil, keep this in mind, our spiritual adversary, the devil, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, from prayerless work, and from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Why? Because the God of the universe answers. Thank you. Amen. The God of the universe answers. My man Eric in the back. I like that name, dude. That's awesome. So the purpose of the circumstances in our lives, our family, our work, our health, our geography, our relationships are so that when I follow this with me, I'm going to take you through a train of of statements here so that we may recognize our dependence, so that we may ask, so that God may respond, so that God may be found true and worthy and be glorified, so that our faith may be increased and people may be saved, so that we may pursue unbelievable things for God through prayer and action so that we may recognize our dependence, so that we may ask, so that God may respond, so that God may be found true and worthy and be glorified, so that our faith may be increased and people may be saved, so that we may pursue unbelievable things for God through prayer and action, so that we may recognize our dependence, so that we may ask, and on and on and on and on. It's rigged. It's rigged, right? so that God may be made much of through our prayers and our pursuits, and that we may know and be deeply known by Him and by one another, all of His creation. How many of you have heard of a man named George Mueller? Show of hands, George Mueller. The few, good, good. Oops, that was an accident. So, George Mueller was an English pastor and a caregiver in the 1800s. He's most well-known for his orphanages that cared for 10,000 orphans solely through prayer. He and his staff never asked, never appealed, never postured need except to God. But listen to what he says about his primary purpose for the orphanage, which was not to care for the orphans. I'm going to read this a little quick. Again, it's a little long, but I'll pause at different sections or at one section. So if a poor man, i.e. himself, simply by prayer and faith obtain without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted, to the reality of the things of God. So what's he saying? He wants to strengthen the faith of Christians... And he wants to testify to the reality of God to those who do not know Christ. And he continues, This then was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house, not the care of the orphans. The first and primary object of the work was and still is that God might be magnified. How? By the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen 
that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. In other words, no one else can get the credit and the glory except God. Out of faith, they pray. God answers for his glory and their good. I know this can sound difficult. I know it can sound convicting. And I know for me, even as I've studied this and wrestled with it, I've come to understand that I am one of the most self-dependent persons I know. In fact, as I was praying about which confident hope to pray for, to, to pray for, to preach on, it's like, surely it's not persistent prayer. And many of you or some of you in the congregation know that about me. But this is not a guilt incrimination. This is an invitation. Let me say that again. This is not a guilt incrimination. This is an invitation. Without prayer, faith is meager. Without prayer, we are left to ourselves and our own desires and innate abilities. Without prayer, intimacy with God is hindered. Without prayer, intimacy is hindered with one another. And without prayer, we and others miss out on seeing and experiencing God accomplishing his work. With prayer, faith is inflamed. With prayer, intimacy with God takes on a whole new depth of relationship. With prayer, you become deeply connected and involved with God's people. With prayer, you see God accomplishing his unbelievable work in you, in us personally, as he changes and shapes us and uses us, and in the world as he changes lives and circumstances. And even as he delays as he loves us and cares for us, reminding us of an eternal glory that far outweighs our current circumstance. He wants this for you. He wants this for your family, for our church, and for the world. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, full, not half full, not partially full, completely full. I love the picture of prayer that Paul paints in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Let me read this to you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, i.e. your hearts, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, i.e. all of us together, manifoldly, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray this way for one another. Pray this way for others that you know. His heart and desire for us is fullness of joy in him. So why pray persistently? Because we draw near to God. 
because we draw near to one another and because he does answer and maybe in ways we couldn't even begin to ask or imagine. So where do we go from here? How do we begin? In a minute, we're going to pray together. But first, let me just suggest this on a personal level. There are only two postures before God, proud and humble. That's it. So pursue humility through repentance as we get convicted and, and pointed at by his word in these areas. Pursue humility through repentance and practicing prayer. So in prayer, there's no secret formula. There's no shortcuts. It is a relationship. Practically, for us as individuals, take in his word. Respond to it through prayer. Pray for yourself and others through the prayers that you read in Scripture, just like we saw in Ephesians chapter 3. Pray for one another in, as you read through that. Follow then where he leads you, both in prayer and in action. Expose yourself to the needs of the local and the global world. And we've got some opportunities, definitely out on the resource table, to get more exposure in these areas of the world. Or as you come to prayer in the morning at 9.15, sorry, 9.45 in the mom's room right over here. For a helpful structure, pray through the acrostic, P-R-A-Y. So P would be praise, just praising God for what you see in his word, what you see in the world, what you see in your own life. Repent of areas that his word pricks in your heart or that he by his spirit pricks in your heart. And then ask of him, intercede for others to him, intercede for yourself to him. And then yield, ask him and say, Lord, help me to follow you, to trust you, to abide in you as I live out the will that you have for me today, this week, this month, this year, and help me yield and be engaged and involved in the life of the body and in the world, i.e. the body, the church, and the world that you have around me. Help me do that, because in my flesh, I'm going to turn right back around to myself and be self-dependent and try to do it all by myself. Help me, Lord. Practically for us together, as a church, pray daily with your family and or others in the church. Pray weekly at community groups. Pray on Sunday mornings, like I said, in the mom's room at 9.45 till about 10.15 or so. Pray bi-monthly at the member prayer meeting, which is actually today at 4 o'clock, and we'll hear about more about that later. Um, and then pray sporadically through other church events or opportunities. And honestly, I'm so encouraged as I see this going on throughout our church now through many different avenues, conduits, and relationships and circumstances. Sometimes it's just two or a few people gathered together around God's word and pray and the overflow of that. Sometimes it's through social media or chat channels like GroupMe or WhatsApp or Hangouts or whatever else we've got available to us on our phones now. And sometimes it's through larger organized events where people specifically are asking for prayer in certain circumstances. So do that, and I'm so encouraged by that and what I see already. And so helps me. Like, I need to be reminded. I'm dependent, and I need to practice and involve myself in prayer. So let's continue to do so more and more and see the fruit God bears in us and through our lives for our good and for his glory. And that brings us, as it does every Sunday at the end of the sermon, to the Lord's Supper. 
The cross of Christ is a picture that reminds us perfectly of our neediness, the depth of our depravity and hopelessness, of God's intervention for the sake of our good and for the sake of his glory, and reminds us of the commission that he has on our lives to love and follow him, to make much of him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to stay in your seats during this time. Maybe to just take the time and ponder what we've looked at this morning. Maybe even just ask God in prayer, help me understand what all this means and how all this fits. Cry out to him and ask him. For those who are in this group with us this morning who have trusted Christ with their lives, servers will be at the front and at the back in both aisles. And this is a response for us, a remembrance for us of all that Christ has accomplished, again, for our good and for his glory. So let's pray together here briefly, and then after I pray, you guys are invited when you're ready, again, to come to the front or to the back to partake of the elements. So let's pray. Lord, you are God, you are almighty, you are glorious. You're a creator of all things. And Lord, we confess that we can often miss that. And we confess that even if we want things that you say are good, that we can often be dependent on ourselves to bring that about. Help our hearts. Help our hearts to love you supremely and to depend on you infinitely. And help us to do that with one another and encourage one another in that. And as you bring about your perfect will, Lord, as Jesus instructed the beginning of this parable, may we continue praying and not lose heart because we know the nature and the character of our, character of our glorious King. In Jesus' name, amen.